0: Let us all take a moment to remind ourselves how fortunate we are to be here today. This is all possible because of the Buddha, of his, because of his infinite compassion, because he established the community of the Sangha to carry forward his message of compassion, loving kindness and unity so that all could bask in this Dhamma and enjoy the bliss that it brings upon us This is the truth that is universal to all men all Devas, all Brahmas There is no other truth, there is no other path to freedom That is why we are so fortunate as we have come across it at a crucial point in our lives, when we ourselves were destitute looking for answers to problems. And our good merits have brought us here. So being grateful to that, being grateful to the Noble Triple Gem, as well as reminding ourselves that this is an opportunity to renew our pledge of allegiance to the Noble Path, and making a promise to ourselves to walk this path until we have attained the supreme bliss of nibbana. Let us bring our palms together in veneration of his holy name.
1: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma Namo Tasse, Bagavetto, Arahato, Sama, Sambuddhasse. Namo Tasse, Bagavetto, Arahato, Sama, Sambuddhasse.
0: You know there's a lot of discord, disharmony and disunity among people in this world. Every year, people come up with reasons to unite, to come together, to find causes for people to coexist in peace and harmony. It has become something that we have actively got to do because segregation is rife. It seems that it is within ourselves to separate ourselves from each other. There are of course the biological differences that separate us, but starting from that, I mean for that, who's to blame? You're going to have to say that is how nature built us. Some are men and others are women, some fair, some dark. But then there are also the other differences that people create within their own minds. And these differences sometimes far exceed the biological, physical differences. And they become part of one's identity an individual's identity, and then a group identity. So the mere fact that people actually live together under one roof, in one nation, in one organization, seems almost a miracle. But because there is so much separation going on, and because people are always thinking about how we have to celebrate how different we are. Events go on all around the world, they get organized yearly, monthly, weekly, daily sometimes even, and people come together to celebrate differences. And they also try and they strive for unity and they strive for harmony. Now you may, in your own social circles, be that at the workplace, maybe at school, if you remember your time from back then, in various circles in society, you will also be part of this, efforts that are made to bring people together. But, you know, some, one thing is true, no matter how much effort is made to bring people together, it seems almost natural, and it seems almost It's almost like intuitively, people are engineered to divide and live their lives in that manner. So, what I see when I look at people and the efforts that they make to unite people is that they're approaching this the wrong way. I appreciate Efforts that are made to unite people, I think that is good. Because if you can do that, then collectively, a lot can be achieved. Because if we are all very individualistic, if we are all only focused on our personal and individual gains, then we are all pulling apart, pulling in every direction. Not much can really be achieved when you do that. Not much goodness can be achieved. In fact, the more we separate, the more we divide, the more there is all the bad stuff that's going on, violence and so on in this world. So when people come together, there is at least unity and harmony within that, within that group. The Buddha himself spoke a lot about how important it is for people to be together, to unite and to be in harmony. But he didn't stop there. He didn't just talk about why it's good for people to be together, for people to unite and be in harmony, he actually gave us the path to that. It's incredibly difficult if you just take a moment to think about your own personal lives. Just take yourselves home for a second. Now at home, you're a family. And as a family, you try to live in harmony. Is that easy? That's difficult, itself. I mean, this is family. Family is mostly comprised of your own choices. Maybe you can't choose your parents, you can't choose your children. They are what your destiny or your fate gives you. But you can choose your spouse. Living in harmony, even at home, where you are among the people who love you the most is also sometimes incredibly difficult. And sometimes there are a lot of compromises you have to make to see past these differences and look at the common areas, the common grounds which keep the two of you together. There may be occasions where some families are still together only because of their children. That's not unheard of. It's quite common, actually, in this day and age. Initially, the two decided that they could live together and they wanted to live together. But then, later on, past the honeymoon stage of their relationship, it comes to a point where it becomes a sore relationship. Because there are more differences than there are things that are similar. At least that is what the mind tends to focus on. Those things that were similar are soon forgotten. And then surface those things which are different. Because these differences, if they're not reconciled, if one does not make a compromise on behalf of another, or in fact on behalf of the relationship, then these relationships don't last very long. Now, there may be parents here who who have children, and they expect and they intend for their children to one day get married, find a suitable other half, and live a happy life. You want that for your children. Of course, any parent would. Unless, of course, they see a greater purpose and then something else awaits them. This is the holy life. But if as parents you wish for your children to live a standard, conventional, happy married life, as they say, It's very important, ladies and gentlemen, that you teach them not only to have their preferences, have their likes, and have the things that interest them, and not only to teach them how to go and get what they want in life, because that we do plenty. You know, right from our very formative and young years, our parents teach us that, our teachers teach us that, how do you go and get what you want? How do you do that in a legitimate manner? And not do it by stealing or robbing or hurting someone else. These things are taught in schools. These things are taught at home. But something that parents tend to forget to teach their children is how you're able to give up things. Give things up. Let go of things. In the name of unity. Because if you don't arm your children with that knowledge, with that wisdom, then Living under one roof, living together with another person is going to be that much hard. Now, if you just go back once again into your own lives, just walk back down that memory lane and ask yourselves or remind yourselves about those in, of those instances where there were arguments at home. There were fights at home maybe. Maybe they didn't get physical, but at least verbal. Everyone has stories like this. Some you struggle to forget even. You want to move past them, but they keep haunting you. Because on some occasions you had your children around as well. And those were not the finest moments of a married couple's life together. But unfortunately, in those instances you are helpless, because there's a reason for that. The reason was, you always learned how to get what you want. What you didn't learn was how to give up what you want. Who teaches you that? Which book teaches you how to give up what you want? They don't write books for this kind of thing. If you think about positive-thinking books, personal development books, these books are mostly themed around how to get what you want. If you have a desire, make some affirmations. Wake up every morning, look up, look to the east, look to the west, look to the south or the north, look at the sun, and make an affirmation. By the end of this day, I shall move forward on my quest to achieve what I want. I will make it my life's purpose to achieve what I want. And then they say at the start of the year, you make a list of the things that you want. These are the things you want to achieve. Make five-year goals, ten-year goals, twenty-year goals, fifty-year goals. If you can't even dream that far. Make these goals and then make that the purpose of your life. And then start working on them. I've not heard a single talk, personally, I don't know if you have, where anyone's ever taught how to give up on something and make that your goal. You might think, well, what about smoking and drinking and maybe habits like that? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the physical desires and wantings. I'm talking about being able to give up something with no expectations left. Unless you are able to do that, unless you learn that skill, that art, ladies and gentlemen, living together with another person is almost impossible. So if there are individuals here who are at this moment, living together with another individual. I mean, you know, human life today is such that you, you can hardly find yourself ever in isolation. Even at the monastery, we live with someone else, a bunch of people. Today we have around 400 people who are permanent residents of this monastery. So at the monastery, we, the monks, the Anagarikas, we live together. And the Anagarika Ram, the Anagarika Markis, they live together. At home, you live together. At the workplace, you work together, for whatever duration in life, you know, how often do you find yourself alone? Hardly at all, right? Most of the time you find yourself with someone else. So if we don't learn the art of letting go of the things that our minds desire, soon enough you'll realize that these relationships which were formed with the intention, with the purpose of bringing something, adding some value to your life and making your life livable and happy will be the very reason why your lives will become incredibly difficult to live. And on some occasions you can undo these relationships, but then on other occasions they become, you know, they are, it is impossible to undo them without a lot of damage. Sometimes they are entirely impossible to undo. And then you just have to put up with them. But even if you find yourself right now in such a situation, in such kind of relationship, there are still answers. Answers are there. Some choose to go get some counselling. And in most of these counselling sessions, especially if you go to a psychologist, maybe in a psychiatrist, They'll teach you to look at something from another person's perspective. Often you get this sort of thing. Can you look at it, look at the situation from the other person's perspective? <coughs> Let's say, for example, you're having problems with your in laws. Do you still have problems with your in laws? No point looking there. If you still have problems with your in laws, Usually these problems will not stop with the in-laws, it will actually come into the family, the nuclear family, and then you're going to have arguments and... all sorts of heartaches between husband and wife, and then the children will also suffer as a result. But let's say, you know, one of these problems, it just kind of gets out of hand all the time. It starts with, you know, one thing, like, where are we going to go for new year this year? So someone says, well, last year we went to your mother's, so this time let's go to mine. And then they say, well, yes, you're right, but I think on this, this year we're going to have to make an exception because my mother's ill now, so I think it's we should go back to hers again. And then the other person says, so the husband says, well, I thought we agreed on this, didn't we, darling? First, darling. It gets goes south from here, but starts off with darling. Didn't we agree on this? Like last year we agreed you know, a couple of years ago we agreed that one year your place, the next year my place. So that's how we've agreed to do this, haven't we? Yes, but you know you've got to think of it, you know the situation is different, isn't it? Because my mother's ill this time, so she'd want us to be there and you know, it's not like she can come and visit us. She's poorly. So I think this year also, let's Let's go my place. And, you know, next two years we can do yours. No, but that's not how we agreed on this. Why are you being so unfair? No, I'm not being unfair. You know, I'm only asking you to just be a little bit more thoughtful. It's not like we wrote it down in stone. Why can't we change it and just be a little bit more understanding? And that's where it starts. So the conversation gets heated up. And then before you know it, dinner is off the menu. And that's why you end up taking takeaways. And in some relationships, takeaways is the answer to most problems. Because people don't know how to resolve these problems because they never learned how to resolve such problems. I can't say that before, in my life, before I got married, anyone taught me how to resolve problems. Because I was I only learned how to get what I wanted. In fact, if I had learned how to get let go of what I wanted, I wouldn't have gotten married, would I? <laughs> Think about it. Why did one get <laughs> why does one get married? Not because they know how to let go of what they want. What they know is how to get what they want. So if anyone wants to get married, that's the wrong kind of person to be getting married to. <laughs> Because what they're saying is, I don't know how to let go of something I want. If I want it, I'm going to go get it. I mean, that's a telltale sign of something, something disastrous going to happen in the future. But we need to equip ourselves with this, with this knowledge, because we have to live with each other. That doesn't sound very nice, does it? We have to live with each other. Shall I say, we get to live with each other? Because we get to live with each other. Because we're so fortunate to live, to live with each other. We've got to learn the art of living together. And unfortunately, they don't teach you this. For science or math, they don't teach you this for sociology. They don't. They talk about how you need to find ways to... They'll tell you, you have to make compromises, yes. They say the strength of any relationship is based on to what degree you are willing to make compromises, to what degree you are willing to make sacrifices, yes. But I think, if a relationship is to work, the strength of a relationship is dependent on how freely you are able to let go of the things that your mind desires. How freely you're able to let go. Because how much can you actually make sacrifices and compromises before you start getting fed up? You know, here's one thing. Usually when one partner in a relationship makes sacrifices, what do they expect the other partner to also do? Hmm? I mean, it, it, it defeats the purpose of making a sacrifice, doesn't it? I've made a sacrifice, why don't you? What? They're just saying, I've just made a sacrifice, why don't you? I mean, if you're making a sacrifice, why are you expecting me to make one? (laughs) That just defeats, I mean, what's the point of that? If you're making a sacrifice, then the whole point of making a sacrifice is that the other person doesn't have to. But, if you've, you know, those of you who've been in relationships, if you'll know what I'm talking about, you get to hear this all the time. If I'm willing to budge, why don't you? If I'm willing to move, why aren't you? So you get these questions. So when you're in a relationship, ladies and gentlemen, or you're planning on getting into one, be that, you know, to live under one roof or even at the workplace. Sometimes some of you will struggle at the workplace, trying to work with your colleagues, trying to work with your boss, your subordinates even. How do you make life easy for you? The answers lay in the Buddha Dhamma. Without the ability to let go of something, it's only a matter of time before you are going to find yourself in a situation where you are going to be in conflict and have friction with someone else. Without the ability to, to let go of something, it's only a matter of time before it happens. This is the principle, this is the teaching that all people should learn before they get into a relationship. How do you let go of something? You know, this might sound so simple, but you know well and truly how difficult it is to do this. How long have you been in the Dhamma now? months, for most of you, it's years. Right? There are still things you're trying to let go of. Ultimately, there's nothing to let go. You just need to understand. You just need to realize. But that realization takes, takes its time. But at least if you know that the cause of your problem, the cause of your conflict is because you are unable to let go of something and it's not caused by the other person, that gives you solutions when, before the problem gets out of hand. Say for instance, so now you're divided. Two people want two things. One wants a pen, another wants a duster. So now you're, going, you're trying to agree on what, what is, what are we going to do tonight? Are we going to do pen or are we going to do duster? you can substitute whatever I'm giving you to unknowns. These are variables. So are we going to do pen or are we going to do duster? So what's going to make this person happy if we do pen? What's going to make this person happy if we do duster? When these two people decide to live together, they must either agree... To let go of what they want and take on what the other person wants. Or they must agree to make compromises. Because these two things, they cannot, they they can't coexist. One wants one, one wants the other. So this person is always thinking about what's good for someone who wants a pen. So they, for example, might... Think, right, this weekend, let's go find a pen holder. That's what they want. Because that's what you do when you have a pen. You want to find a pen holder. Whereas this person, this weekend, they're making plans. What shall we do this weekend? Let's go find a duster cover, not a pen holder. Because that's what they want. This, guy, this guy's a pen guy, this guy's a duster guy. So now they have to make compromises. Now, right. apply this into your own lives and ask yourselves, the last time you, were, you, were, you had an argument, the last time there was an altercation at home because the two of you wanted something else, here's what happened. You wanted this, the other person wanted that. Now, these two things, they can't coexist because it's incredibly difficult. If you have a pen, you have things that you need to do with a pen. If you have a duster, you need to do things that are, do, that are to do with a duster. Now, you take lessons. Right, So you go to sometimes your parents, you ask your parents, he wants this, she wants this, I don't know how to how to make this relationship work. So then the parent says, you know, Beta, you've got to think. You've got to think about it from their perspective. This one goes to the parent, Betty, you've got to think about it from their perspective. So the parents, they try. they try. They try the ways in which they have learned from their parents and so on. But... They never say, let go. Because they don't know how to. It's easy to say, just let go. But letting go is not a physical act. Letting go is a mental act. How do you mentally let go of something? Unless you have listened to the Buddha Dhamma, no one knows. Did you know how to let go of things that you were mentally attached to until you learned the Dhamma? Did you? Anyone? (laughs) No, no one did. That's why you, you struggled in life. That's why, you, that's why you got hurt so much in life. If you did, you know, the, like when you lose something, right? if something that belongs to you, something you love, something you're really attached to is lost, you know, why don't you just let go of it mentally? Now physically it's lost. Why don't you just let go of it mentally? It was not possible. The physical letting go was just a matter of time. The fire did it. The floods did it. The wind did it. The earth did it. The elements took the things that belonged to you, but the things that you were mentally attached to, they remained because you had, no, you had no way of letting go of the things that you were attached to mentally. It's not something you will learn in a book. It's not something you will learn at school. This is only something you can learn from a noble friend. But alas, for all the friends that we had, what we lacked were noble friends. A noble friend teaches you how to let go of something mentally so that you can be happy. Here's the difference between a friend and a noble friend. A noble friend will teach you that a good friend will teach you how to get what you want. So a friend will teach you how to get what you want and find where you can get what you want. They'll tell you where the nearest shop is. They'll tell you which website you can go to. They'll tell you who else might have this so you can go and either lend it from it or buy it from them. But a noble friend will teach you, you don't need to go anywhere, just be where you are and just let go of it mentally. Now you are free. This is what we didn't learn. This is what our parents never taught us because our parents were only friends to us. They were not noble friends. You can't blame them because they themselves didn't have noble friends. You see, for, an, for, you, for someone to be a noble friend, they have to be connected to a lineage of noble friends. That is the only way noble friendship can happen. They have to be connected to a lineage of noble friends. That lineage has to originate with whom? The supremely enlightened one. It has to. Whether it's this Buddha or the Buddha before him, or the Buddha before him, or the Buddha before him. Even if you go into one of the Brahma worlds, You might find noble friends that people who have become anagami people, anagamis. They themselves will have heard the Dhamma from, if not this Buddha, a previous Buddha. But it's always connected to a lineage that originates with the Supreme Buddha. There's no other way that noble lineage or noble friendship can happen. So the day that you... Connect yourselves with the Dhamma is the day that you become a noble friend and therefore you can extend that noble friendship to someone else. You know, this is what adding value to your life is really, ladies and gentlemen, because all problems in life will have one answer once you become a noble person. These two people have the same answer, but they just don't know it yet. I mean, they don't have the answer, but that is what the answer should be. They just don't know it yet. Here's what this person will try and do with this person and you tell me whether this is not what you tried at home, right? This is what you see on TV, you shouldn't be trying this at home, but this is what you do at home. This person will be telling this person all the good things about a duster. So she will be telling him about all the good things about a duster, hoping that one day he will realize. Tell me you haven't done that. You try and convince the other half of why something you want to do, something you want to have, somewhere you want to be, is the best thing to have, the best place to be, the best person to be with, and therefore why they should let go of the pen and take up the duster. That's what you're trying to do, right? Tell me what are they trying to do. What's he trying to do? The same. Except this time he's doing it about the object of his desire. So he'll, he'll keep going on about why the pen is the better object. He'll tell you, you know, what's the point of a duster? What's the point of a duster if you don't have a pen? <laughs> then she'll tell you what's the point of having a pen if you can't have a duster? You can only use it once. Then he'll be telling you well, what's the point of a duster if you don't have a pen because if I don't come first then you have no purpose of being. Now they'll have arguments. So they become salesmen one tries to sell to the other person something that they have so they want and they want them the other person to buy it this is why relationships don't work always trying to convince the other person to their way of thinking i'm using a very simple example right because there are young people in the audience as well i'm using very simple examples i want you to substitute your own life problems into these into these variables and Seek answers to the problems, the practical problems that you have in life. Because even right now, you're probably going through a problem, something like this. Perhaps maybe, perhaps just this morning, the two of you were trying to decide, are we going to the monastery today, or are we going to our parents today? We haven't been to the beach for a while. Yeah, but Saturday is monastery day. (laughs) We have to go to the monastery, said she. Yeah, but we always go to the monastery on a Saturday. Why can't we just go somewhere else for a change? There's a new movie in the theatres. It's not going to be there every day. We can watch the sermon online. But you can't watch the new movie online. You've got to go to the theatre. See? How do you win this? Who wins this? If, ultimately, you decide to go to the monastery, have you won? If you go to decide to go to the theatre, have you won? Who wins? They both lose. They both lose. Because what they haven't discovered is how to really solve a problem with the Dhamma. They are not using the Dhamma to solve this problem. What they don't understand is this is a mental attachment, therefore this is a mental vexation. Ladies and gentlemen, it's got nothing to do with watching a film or going to the monastery. It has nothing to do with that. These are just the variables. These variables, they change their values every day. Today it's going to the monastery. This same person, the next weekend, will say, actually, you know what, shall we go watch a a film today? And then this guy will say, no, I would like to go to the monastery today. I've seen lots of couples, relationships where this has happened. First, it was the lady who wants to come to the monastery. Husband doesn't want to. He's adamant that he's not going to come to the monastery. But then she she tries everything in the book. Come on, let's go. Let's just go and offer some alms. You don't have to listen to the sermon even, right? Let's go for a couple of hours. After that, we can come before Guru Hamduru arrives. Oh, fine, let's go then. Right? So they go to the monastery. Any monastery, not just this monastery, any monastery. So then they go. And then they offer the alms. Then they see the Swami as says, they come, they walk into the Dhamma hall, very impressed now. They get to hold the Mudhu very impressed now. And then they listen to a sermon. Now, utterly impressed. Then she says, all right, time's up, honey. Your two hours is up, let's go, we've got work to do. Can we stay a little bit longer? Just, just a little bit longer? No, uh, okay. Seems like you've taken a liking to it. Yeah, it's not so bad, actually. Shall we stay a bit, little bit longer? Just a little bit longer. So they, they decided to stay a little bit longer. Now, they arrived at 7 o'clock in the morning. They decided to leave just after lunch. And now it's 6 o'clock. Right, time to leave. Can I stay the night? You can drive back. He says, you drive back, you've got the key, you know how to drive, that's why I taught you how to drive. Right? <laughs> I'll come back tomorrow. Now what's happened? This is what has happened now. So really, neither of them have discovered, have learned how to let go. Therefore, these problems are never solved this way. What you want today will change tomorrow, but wanting will still be there. I can't emphasize this enough, ladies and gentlemen, because if you, if you really want to live a happy life, okay, whether that is as a monk, as an anagarika, or as a layperson, you need these principles. These are the principles that help you live a happy life. So therefore, these principles, it's worth paying whatever you have for. Let's we have a pink atti there. Where is it? But these are the lessons that, are, that is worth paying anything for. Because after all, if money was earned to bring you happiness, but it doesn't, now you've got to look and go and look, look for an alternative. This is the alternative that your boss doesn't give you. At the end of the month, you know, in fact, you work your socks off, right? To do a good day's work, to do a good month's work for your boss. If your boss really loved you, what should he pay you in? <laughs> Paycheck or the dumb? That's what he should pay you. The dumb. What does my boss pay me? Huh? Dumb, no, yes. That's a good boss. What do your bosses pay you? Rupees and cents? Pounds and pennies? Dollars and cents? A good bus space in something that is that really helps one be happy. They need to learn how to let go. So, if you find yourselves in some kind of argument at home or at the workplace, do try and remember what you've learned here today, because you know, as people who are still they still still have to live a lay life. You will often find yourselves in situations where you have to, you have to make compromises or you'll expect the other person to make compromises. You know, so life is such, right, you always have to face up to someone who, has, who wants, who likes, who desires things that are different to what you want, like and desire. Therefore, in these situations, life can become incredibly tough on you, and then you start vexing. If you don't allow the Dhamma to come and help you then, what's the point of having the Dhamma in the first place? Let the Dhamma in. Let it come and help you. Let it come and save you. So next time when you're at the office, next time when you're at work, when you're at home and you know you're going to get yourself into a nasty argument of some sort or some kind of altercation, Allow the Dhamma to come come forward. Remind yourself of the Dhamma and realize that the reason that you're about to have this argument is because you are unable to let go. So if you are unable to let go, why do you expect the other person to let go? This is quite a funny thing. You know, People struggle to let go and then they expect the other person to let go. Why do you expect someone else to do what you can't do? That's un- that is unfair if you ask me, isn't it? Why can't you let go? So ask someone who can't let go. That's like the blind asking another blind person, why can't you watch where you're going? Well, because I'm blind, and so are you. That's not something a blind man can can can, you know, justly ask another blind man, why don't you watch where you're going? See, the thing is, when you're attached to something, your life becomes a project, and that project is to maintain it. Maintain that object. But by object, I mean anything. It doesn't necessarily have to be an object. It can be a physical object, can be a real object, as in a living object, can be an event, can be a situation, can be anything. When, you're li- when you are attached to something, your life becomes a project of maintaining it. It has to be there. It has to be there no matter what. Whatever the circumstances, it has to be there. And then your life becomes a an activity, an endeavor to ensure that it is always there. It has to be there for you because your your happiness depends on it. You undermine your lives, you undermine yourselves to a mere object, a physical object. See, in life you'll have lots of these examples, ladies and gentlemen. Some of you might have been attached to your property. Maybe it's your it's your house. Maybe if you have land, some people are attached to that, and then their their lives become their lives become a life of servitude. They spend their entire lives looking after their property, looking after their land. Now, who's the servant and who's the master? It is said, you know, when you own land, you are the master. And then you hire people to come and work on the lands, right? And they consider them to be the the servants. But actually, the servants only come and work eight to five. At five, they leave. And then, even if lightning strikes, and there's an earthquake, and the whole place collapses, they don't care. Next day, they'll go find somewhere else to work. But when you are the owner of the land, who is constantly the servant, that owner... So if this is something that you want, you become its slave. How many things are you a slave to today? Think about this. How many things are you a slave to today? Because once you become a slave to it, in other words, once you think to yourselves that this is the source of my happiness, now you have to maintain it. Therefore, you have to protect it. You have to keep it in its place. You have to keep it in good stead. Its upkeep becomes your job Even if it's your children Even if it's your job If it's your car Why did you buy a car? So that it could give give you a comfortable life Yeah? Answer this question for me You have a car The car has you Yes? How often does the car serve you Versus how often do you serve the car? You have a car at home. Okay? You drive it to work. And then once you're at work, you park your car in the car park. So say the, 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 the trip to work takes you one and a half hours. Then while you're at work, your car is parked in the car park. And then after work, you drive it back. Another one and say two hours traffic. Okay? So for a total of two three three and a half hours, you're in the car and while you're in the car the car keeps you comfortable it's got air conditioning it got it's got leather seats very comfortable it's got it's music right you can listen to the music and it's got lane guidance it's it keeps you safe the airbags and all that stuff right it keeps you very comfortable safe protected and it gives you a very nice ride very smooth You enjoy that ride. And, you know, people look at you when you're driving around in that and, you know, they're impressed, so therefore you're impressed. All that for three and a half hours. Once you're back at home, you pull it up into the driveway or in your your garage and now it's parked up there. This car has served you for how many hours today? Three and a half hours. How many hours have you served the car? Is it only during these three and a half hours you have to look after it? Answer No You left home at 6am You came back home At 8pm Okay So Between these two hours Between 6am and 8pm Three and a half hours Was when you actually used your car The rest of the time when you're at the office, so you got to the office by, say, uh, 7.30, no, uh, 7.30. You got to the office by 7.30 and you left the office at 6, 6 o'clock, no, yeah, 6 o'clock. So how many hours? One and a half hours there, no, one hour here, okay. So you got to the office at 7, right? So you leave the office at six thirty you 're at the office at seven o 'clock during this time, your car is in the car park when you 're back at work, when you 're back at home your car is again back in the garage while it 's in the garage you have to look after it it 's in the car park yes you 'll have someone the, the, you know, someone at the office maybe a security guard who looks after your vehicle but you can't entirely entrust that person with it. You've got to make sure that he's doing his job. Otherwise, your car is going to be a disaster. Someone's going to run away with it, drive it away, or maybe crash into it. Something, something bad is going to happen to it. So it's not just when you're using your car, you have to look after it. You're always looking after it. For what return? Three and a half hours worth of use. Are you, are you going to seriously tell me that your car serves you? Who's serving whom? <laughs> no, don't look down. Look at me and answer. <laughs> is the car serving you or are you serving the car? You're serving the car. Yes. Right, that's one servant. A oh, one master. Your car is the master and you're the servant. Shall we take another object? <clears throat> Let's take your watch, the one that you wear on your wrist. These days you can get watches for like many hundreds of thousands of rupees. Like I mean, sometimes watches are as expensive as houses. And they only still tell the time. I have to contain myself. They only still tell the time. You can get one from Panchikavattha for 350 rupees, and you can get one online or at proper shop in somewhere on the high street for 350,000 rupees. And guess what? They both tell the time. And it's not like one tells you the time. You have to read it. With both of them, you have to read the time. I mean, it would be one thing, wouldn't it, if if the watch came up to you and said, hey, it's 3.15. No, you have to look at it. And even the one you get from the, these, you know, shops you find on the, along the street, right, even they, the shacks, they they also tell the time. Actually, they don't tell the time, you have to read the time. So whether you pay 350 or 350,000, they both simply tell the time. Now, how often do you look at your watch? You wear it. Let's say you wear it for 10 hours, okay, 10 hours, your watch is on your wrist. How often do you look at the time? Because that's the only time you're using it, yeah? You have your wrist, you have a watch on it. you have it right now on your wrist. For those of you who do, are you using it right now? No, but you're still carrying it, yeah? So when you're using it is the only time where it's actually serving you. But when you're carrying it, who's serving whom? You're serving, you're serving the watch. And the more expensive it is, the more of a servant you are. Because sometimes you will have to give up your right arm to save the watch. Because your right arm is not that expensive. Some people are willing to give up so much to save their watches just a watch, it's just a watch, but because it's so expensive, you know, Yeah, if you have to, you know, take my mother, but please keep my watch. People will go to whatever extent, when something is of great value to them, they're willing to, they're willing to give up so much to protect them and to keep them with them, because that they believe is the source of their happiness. See, I ask you, so 10 hours, it's on your wrist, but how long does it actually serve you? How many times do you actually look at the time? Maybe, say, 10 times a day. right? 10 times a day you look at the time. Let's say one, once every hour you look at the time just to check what time it is, whether it's time to move to your next appointment or whether you are induced in expecting someone and so on. Move to your next class, you know. go to the next appointment, whatever. Is it time for lunch? Let's say 10 times, on 10 occasions you, look, you check the time. How long do you look at the clock, Did the watch or the clock to read the time? How, I mean, how long do you look at it? Right, I've got a clock in my hand. Let's count how long it takes you to read the time, okay? Done? That's all the time you needed. Just a few seconds. So for a few seconds, 10 times, let's say three seconds it took you to read the time, 10 times means that's a total of 30 seconds. 30 seconds the whole day, the entire day, for 30 seconds your watch has served you. How much do you serve the watch? (laughs) Only when it's on your wrist? What about when it's at home? You are still serving it. This is why the Buddha speaks so highly about the life of a monk. Because you are freed from the life of servitude. You don't serve any other purpose other than Nibbana. You only become a servant to Nibbana. Whatever Nibbana wants, I shall do that, but I don't want to be a servant. To anything or anybody else. You don't need to. But just think about it, ladies and gentlemen, you know, you think you have, you have surrounded yourselves with things that serve you, when ultimately you have become servants to all of them. I've just, took, I've just taken two examples. A lot of people, they build big houses, big houses, because that's what makes them happy. I'm not against building big houses. Like I, I've, said, I've said this to you many times, right? as I'm driven to Colombo, I see bigger and bigger and bigger. The houses keep getting bigger, but the families keep getting smaller. Because, why? Because two people can't live together. They have not learned the art of living together. What they have learned the art of is getting what they want. So the houses keep getting bigger, but the families keep getting smaller. Back then, people still built big houses, but they housed ten people in the same family, 15 people in the same family, they used to live together, those were called bungalows and they lived together, but today you have houses twice the size of those houses but you only have two people, three people at most and even still, the husband has his own room, the wife has her own room and the son has his own room and the daughter has her own room they all live individually because personal space is very important these days Do you know why personal space is so important? Because when I want to do something, I don't like other people coming and telling me about the other things that they want to do. Because that bothers me. I just want to do what I want to do. Because when I'm with someone who wants to do what they want to do, they keep on telling me why this is not good and why this is good. And that bothers me, that annoys me. Why can't they understand? What I want is what I want. You expect this from the other person, they expect it from you, neither is happy because neither is willing to compromise. And even if you are willing to compromise, that is not the answer to the problem. Compromises are not the answer to the problem. Patience is a virtue, I agree, but patience is for patience. You shouldn't need to be patient. Once you have the Dhamma, you, don't need, you, you shouldn't need to be patient. Patience is, is difficult to do. Patience is hard. Patience is hurtful, isn't it? It's difficult. You don't need the Dhamma to be patient. It's just a virtue. In every religion they talk about patience. So coming back again, let's take the example. We talked about the house, we talked about... Oh no, we didn't talk about the house, we talked about the car, we talked about the watch. Right, let's take the house then. These days houses are mansions, right? You can have a house that has... How many bedrooms does your house have? First tell me, how many are you at home? Three? Okay. How many bedrooms? Five? Why five? One per person, and then one spare room, visitor's room. Then you have the maid's room. And then there was some extra space, so you converted that. Six let's not go five these days six okay and then how many bathrooms each room has an attached bathroom okay so let's take another six too many all right okay let's go five six bathrooms then you of course have the living space as well one living room there's one kitchen. There's one the the master kitchen, and then you have the kitchenette, which is another one. Then of course you need a storeroom. Then you have the laundry room. What else do you have? Man cave. Oh, man cave. You have another one. The gaming room. Is that the one? These days you have may- gaming rooms as well. Then you have. Uh, Oh, gym, yes. You have the gym. All right, Three people. This is all? That's at home. Six bedrooms, five bathrooms. Gym, that room, this room, the other room, game room, and so on. How many? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight, plus six bedrooms, plus five bathrooms. This is a palace. Where's the king? <laughs> there are no kings here. There are only slaves. Those days, kings used to build palaces for themselves. Today, slaves build prisons for themselves and they lock themselves inside. How, much, how many of these rooms can you use at any one time? Hmm? I'm asking you individually, how many of those rooms can you use at any one time? Two? Just one. At any one point you can only use one room. So while you're in one bedroom, right? there are the other five bedrooms, who's got to look after them? Who's got to clean them? Who's got to dust them? Who's got to wash them? Who's got to adjust the furniture? Who's got to make sure that there are no termites? Who's got to, who's got to chase away the cockroaches? Who's going to do all that? And of course along the way a lot of demerit as well. You got to kill the things. You got to chase the things. Then there are the rodents. Right? You got to put right poison. By the way, I'm not saying you got to do that. I'm just saying this is what people do. This is what people do. So you have to do these things. You are only in one room but the rest of the house you have to look after so i ask you again the question and also besides this is not throughout, you know this is not 24/7 because you have to leave for work yeah so how long are you actually at home in this in this palace of yours say take monday to friday you leave home at what time 11 and uh, no but realistically speaking how many rooms do you have at home let's take uh, let's take a uh, An average, how many rooms do you have? Don't talk about Sudhuminis village, okay? That's different. I mean, home, home. Like, when you're home, where I used to live, we used to have, a long time ago, two, three, four, five, six, six bedrooms, three toilets, so nine for the four of us. There was, nine, there was four of us at home and we had nine rooms. Ah <clears throat> oh, no, 10, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, the storeroom as well. 10 rooms for the four of us. Most of the time we were together. <laughs> but all the other nine rooms, they had to be maintained. So someone who, we all left home Around uh, 6 o'clock in the morning. By, by around 6, we'll, we'll all have left home. And when we, we'll get back home about the same time, 6 p.m. Right? So from 6 to 6, we are not at home. Then, 6 p.m. to 6 p.m., 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., we're at home. Most of the time, sleeping. So when you're sleeping, you're not really making use of a lot of the home. You're just in bed. Yeah? So 6 hours of this 12 hours, we are asleep. <laughs> You're not really making use of your home, right? You're just on, on the bed. So then only about another six hours, plus, and if you include the weekends, most of the time we are out, even on weekends. So, although we've built this mansion for ourselves, how much does the home actually serve you? What do you say? If you hired someone to do some work for you, I'm asking you whether you'd, you'd be happy with this kind of person. Let's say you hired someone to do some work for you, okay? You pay them for every hour they're with you. So they charge you by the hour, but they don't work every hour. You get the point? They charge you by the hour. So as long as they're at your place, they charge you, but only if you give them work do they do the work. And the moment you give them work, they've done it. They've done it. The moment you you give them that work, They've done their work. So it takes them a matter of seconds to do their work. After that, they're again idling, waiting for you to give them work. That's exactly how rooms work, right? If you walk into a room, it serves you. The moment you walk out of that room, what does it do? It stops serving you. Does it continue serving you? No, it stops serving you the moment you walk out of that room. So for 12 hours of a day, you are out six hours of the time you're in you're just in bed so maybe for another six hours you might be walking around doing various bits and bobs cooking right watching tv reading newspapers right listening to music whatever you have to do at home how much does the home actually serve you and i ask you the next the next question if this was someone you hired would you actually keep this person in a job But you paid for this. In fact, you sacrificed a whole life. How long is your mortgage? How many years of mortgage payments do you have to make? 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50? And the down payments? And all the loans that you had to take to build up, what do you call it, the the deposit? to get your mortgage, and then you have to go to work to pay the, to pay the mortgage. Even if you're renting it, you still have to pay, the, pay your rent. All this you have to do. You know, who's serving whom, I ask you? Are you serving your home? Sorry, is this home serving you or is this, are you serving the home? Who's serving whom? You're serving the home. That's why as a big co- we don't have that problem. For the duration of our stay, we are responsible for the place that we are in. Once it's time, time to leave, pick up your arms bowl, pick up your three robes and you bid farewell. From that, point, from that point forward, it just becomes an umbrella. Anyone can come and stay. Now, myself included, I am in a kuti. I'm only in that kuti when I'm in that kuti. At any other time, it's available for anyone to use. Are your homes like that? When you're not there, is it available for anyone to come and just make use of it? (laughs) No, it's not. Because you you can't. Because there are things in there that are precious to you. What if someone takes it? What if someone breaks it? So you can't. So therefore you have to keep them locked. And when it's locked, no one can use that space. Not you, not anybody else. This is space that is on this earth That was available for every human being to use equally, but you have now separated that space and no one can use it when you're not there. And people think they're very advanced, but look at where we've gotten ourselves. So who's serving who, I ask you? Are you being served or are you serving? So you see, we've taken three examples of material objects. Took your car, took your watch, took your house, and on all three occasions you agreed, unanimously you all agreed, that it doesn't serve me as much as I serve it. So who's the servant? Who's the master? Do you really feel that as lay people you live a free life? Is this a life of freedom? If you are always a servant, this is slavery. So then you'll ask me, what are you saying, give up everything and just go and live in a forest? Live as a hermit? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, look at what you've got yourselves into when all you wanted to do was live a life of freedom. Honestly, ladies and gentlemen, did you come into this world as a human being to become a slave to material objects? Was that your purpose of coming into this world as human beings? To become slaves to material objects? Do you enjoy where you are right now? It's just a matter of thinking. You know, you, you think that you have, but really you are owned. You think you own. The truth is you are owned. I want you to start to recognize what's really happened to you. Anything and everything that you believe you have and you own, really it has you. You think you have your children? I think with children this is a pretty obvious one. You know especially with children you have to look after them. I think there's no doubt about that. You are slaves to your children. You know when you began as a mother, you had to rent out your womb so that the child could come and spend. Nine and a half, nine, ten months in there, and all that while, you were a slave. You'd like to think yourselves as a mother, but actually you were a slave. You ate for him. You, you breathed for him. Everything you had to do, you, know, you nurtured, nourished, protected all that the mother had to do. So therefore the mother is a slave to the child. And then the child comes into this world. Once the child is in the world, now who's a slave? They continue to be a slave. Because especially in the first few years, the child cannot do anything to defend themselves. So therefore, again, the mother and the father this time around, they have to to work day and night, slaving for their children. And then, of course, the child comes of age. And then they have to be protected from bad association. Still saving. The children need education. Slaving. This is slavery. You can't deny this. I challenge you if anyone here wishes to deny I'm I'm prepared to listen to your point of view but the truth is no this is you have to you you'll have to agree with me this is slavery and then the children they they grow older and then it's time to say goodbye and go and start living their own lives so they start a family and then what you think it's done then Have you ever heard of parents who, once the parents, once the children decided they were going to go and start living, their old families could actually go, that's it, job is done, I'm free now. You know that never happened, because you can't let go, you can't let go. Even as parents, when you, see, when you know well and truly your, your daughter is now being looked after by another man, he's, you trust him, at least to some extent that she'll, she'll keep him, keep her safe and protected and keep her happy. Or the other way around, you still feel like you have to check in. Every once in a while you have to give a call, and make sure that things are okay. Every once in a while you have to call in and check that things are okay. Because you know that no one in this world is going to love your child as much as you do. Agreed or not? No one in this world is going to love your child as much as you do. Not her husband, not her wife, not his wife. You know this? Because as a mother, there's no one in this world who can love your child as much as you do. So therefore you want the best for your child, and therefore you can't give up. Even you know you will take your love for your child to your deathbed. You will. And therefore, until that last breath, you are still a slave. But what I'm saying is that is not what you came into this world for. The other day I spoke to you, I asked you this question: Did you come into this world to become a mother? Only last week or the week before, I asked you this question. Did you actually come into this world to become a mother? Did you come into this world to become a father? Or have you simply become the product of what people around you said you ought to do? I'm not a father. I'm not a biological father. I'm okay though. I'm happy. I'm content. Because I don't have to be a biological father to give a father's love don't have to be. You don't have to be a biological mother to give a mother's love. Isn't that why you bring your children and leave them at Siumag? With the Swami Nuhanses, with the Anagarika Mahatmyas. Because you know during that time, they will receive mother's love. They will receive a father's love. But with nothing expected in return. So you don't have to be a biological mother or father to be able to give that love. Here's what happens when you become one and you have that mental attachment to them, you don't just become someone who gives mother's love and father's love, you become a slave. Because then your happiness depends on theirs. This is a very dangerous position to get yourselves into, ladies and gentlemen. Remember this and remember this well for the rest of your lives. Whenever your happiness depends on something, that is an incredibly terrible situation to get yourselves into. If ever you see such a situation developing, walk away, as quickly as you can. Don't ever let your mind fall prey, fall victim to a situation where your happiness depends on something else. These are the things that have happened to you and now you're struggling to get yourselves out of them. That's why relationships always fail. In a relationship, there's a, there are always ups and downs. Unless that relationship is based on letting go. When a relationship is based on letting go, that is the relationship that we have. It is the dhamma that connects us. That's why we are united. This word unity is a lovely word. Let me write on the board for you. You know, when you write T, it means it relates to something, right? Like majesty, scarcity. What other teas do you know? Taste, tasty. Huh? So then you know there's a word called I. I, you. This is it. Not IT, as in information technology, IT. But when you undo this, you can undo IT. When you undo me and things to do with me, now you have unity. I just made that up. That is not the etymology of the word, by the, by the way. I, I'm just playing with it, okay? But that's what unity is after all, though, isn't it? Whenever you are focused on what you want, your wants, your desires, your needs, there cannot be unity. So then you'll be asking me, so if we make compromises, is that unity? That is the unity that conventionally people believe in making compromises, making sacrifices. But like I said, today you want to be at the monastery, the other person wants to go watch the, food, watch the movie. But next day, it's gonna be the other way around. So where's unity? Whenever you want this, you're trying to convince the other person to let go of the pen and, also, and subscribe to the duster. When you want the pen, you're trying to convince the other person to let go of the duster and subscribe to the pen. You're always trying to convince another person in that relationship to want the same thing that you want. You're always trying to convince the other person to do that. How about you try, stop con- trying to convince the other person and maybe convince yourself to let go what you want. That's why I say, true unity can only happen in the Asana, Because it is only in the Asana you can learn how to let go of what you want. When I let go of this pen, You'll tell me, I have now let go of the pen. But what have I I truly let go of? Everything. You can't tell me I've let go of the pen because you can only tell me I'm holding the pen. Once I let go of the pen, it's not the pen I've let go. Because in this moment, it is not the pen that I have let go. Does it look like I've let go of the pen? This? I keep holding this hand like this. Let me explain this to you again. I have the pen in my hand. Okay, what am I holding on to? The pen. The moment I put this down and I show you my hand, you will tell me, so mean, Nasi, you let go of the pen. Okay, I'll keep holding my hand like this. How about now? Let go of the pen? I'll keep holding my hand like this until tomorrow. Now what? Still let go of the pen? Soon enough you're going to tell me, no, no, you haven't let go of the pen. Because I also did that three years ago. But you're not telling me that I let go of the pen, are you? I let go of something else, a tree, an apple, six years ago. You're not telling me that I let go of the apple. You're only talking about the pen now because you feel that there's a connection with the pen. That is a connection that is in your mind. It's not here. What's really here is, I am not attached to anything. Not pen, not duster, not anything else in this room. I'm free So when you are free You're free You're not free from anything You're just free Unattached to anything That's why unattachment Is universal Unattachment is unattachment to anything Detachment is detachment to anything Letting go is letting go of everything So you can't ask the question What have you let go When when letting go happens Letting go has happened Letting Letting go of everything That's it So then the other person, they've got the duster. Now you expect the other person to let go of the duster. But as long as they keep wanting the duster, attached to the duster, they will want things related to the duster. So they'll try and convince you to let go of the pen and hold on to the duster. But, once you put that down, now you let go of what? The duster? No, you let go of everything. Once you let go of everything, now you have two individuals who have let go of everything. Is there a reason for these two people to to conflict? What grounds, what are the grounds on which these two people can have a fight now? Tell me. What are the grounds on which there can be an argument for these two people? What are we going to argue about? Can you argue about something you are not attached to? Can you debate about something you're not bonded to? Can you, can you, can you have an, a, a fight over something you don't want? <laughs> Ever heard of that? Two people having a fight about something they don't want. When do people have fights? As children, when did you fight? When you had something you wanted. right? You fought with your parents, you fought with your siblings, you fought with your friends when there was something you wanted. You wanted the bike, your brother also wanted the bike, so you fought. Today you want the car, and your wife also wants the car, so therefore you fight. How come, today is my day, why don't I get to drive, you drove yesterday, fight. But if you have both, let go. Now you can't tell me, let go of what? Because there is nothing, once you've let go, you can't ask the question, let go of what? Do you get the point? When you're attached to, you can ask, attached to what? But once you've let go, let go of what? Hmm? But in your minds don't you have an answer Immediately after I let go That is jati That is because of jati you feel that way Because you feel there is a connection See in time there is a connection Six Two seconds ago I was attached to the pen But now I have let go Now you are connecting these two events On the dimension of time That is jati So when letting go has happened Letting go has happened Not of what? Letting go has simply happened That's it Letting go is letting go, of all, everything. Now you have two individuals who have let go. They learn, they learn how to let go, they understand the principles of letting go. Once you have two people like that coming under one roof, there is no reason for, for fights, for arguments. So, ladies and gentlemen, if at home you still have arguments, if at, at home you still have fights, if at home there is still no peace, and one person is trying to speak over the other person and is always so heated up at home, there's no happiness, there's no bliss. If the children, you know, they still get the, the brunt of it, because you, the parents are always arguing, you need to get into your heads, this is because you are not applying the Dhamma that you learn here. Simple as that. Remember last week I asked you this, I told you, you are all practicing but not enough. And I said, whenever you have these problems, whenever vexations come into your mind, don't look for any answer other than the answers that the Dhamma offers you. Now you need not ask me, Nasa am I practicing? Let's ask your children, they'll tell you. Ask the dog, it'll tell you. Ask your neighbours, they'll tell you. as the rest of the people who live in your family, they'll tell you whether you're practicing the Dhamma or not. I don't know that. I know you're listening to the Dhamma. I can give you a test to check whether you have understood the Dhamma, but whether you're practicing the Dhamma, that I don't know. That people who live with you, they know. Your pets know. Your neighbors know. Your colleagues know. Whether you're actually applying the Dhamma that you have learned, Because if you are able to do that, you let go. You actually don't let go. Letting go simply happens. Physically, you have still all the things that you need around you. But mentally, you're not attached to anything. And therefore, you have become equanimous. This is such a peaceful state of mind that I'm trying to talk to you about, ladies and gentlemen. It is such a peaceful state of mind. Where things don't bother you. I was thinking the other day, when was the last time I actually got angry? You know, because I have to make my own personal reflections. How, you know, how am I doing on this? Because, you know, it's one thing to preach, it's another to do it, right? If you don't practice what you preach, then there's no greater hypocrite than that. So I was thinking to myself, you know, we're talking about not you know, applying the Dhamma and all these things. When was the last time I actually got angry? And then it came to me, actually, I can't remember the last time I actually got angry. I can pretend to be angry. I'm very good at that. Ask them, but I honestly can't remember the last time I got angry. You know, to really get heated up and boiled up inside, and you know, really feel like you know I'm going to tear tear them another page and speak my mind. No, I've not felt. I can't remember the last time that happened to me, and that is not a miracle. It's not magic. Because if it was, I wouldn't know how to explain to you how to get there. I'm not a Pacheka Buddha. I know the path. I know how this has happened. I know how this works. I was someone who used to get angry. I was. I remember when I was, what, maybe 13, 14, one day someone really annoyed me. The friend came round and he was really trying to, he was really getting on my nerves. I remember chasing the fellow out with a broomstick. I was only 12. I ran down the street with the broom in my hand. <laughs> I was in a hissy fit. I, I, was, I was really enraged. Only 12. Because what I'd seen was, when, you don't, when there's something that's happening around you that you don't like, if they don't listen, right, then you've got to shout at them. You've got to scream at them. You've got to scare them into action. You've got to punish them. In other words, what I, re- what I learned was, if there's something you want to happen, and it's not happening for you, do whatever it takes to change that other person. Change them. If they don't listen to you, if, when you ask them nicely, then inflict pain and it'll work. That's the principle that I'd learnt by that point. So I used to get angry. But now I can't remember the last time I got angry. I'm asking you, can you say the same about yourselves? I don't want an answer. I want you to be impressed by yourself. I'm impressed by what the Dhamma has done for me. You know, these are the rewards that the Dhamma brings. This is, these are the rewards that my monkhood has brought me. Not just a free meal. Because there is no such thing as a free meal. I'm paying for it with my merits. You're earning merits, I'm spending them. <laughs> Who's got the better end of the deal? <laughs> You've got the better end of the deal because you're earning merits, I'm spending mine. When you offer arms, isn't it? You're earning I'm spending. So you got some for tomorrow. I'm spending all of mine. But I do try to earn my merits by doing meritable deeds so that I can sustain myself until, until the end. But these are the rewards that monkhood has offered me, ladies and gentlemen. These are the rewards that you must expect from the Dhamma. If you can't remember the last time you got angry, I mean, come on. What more do you want? If there are those among you who really get annoyed about things and frustrated and, you know, really, it pees you off, really annoys you. Right? And you you find yourself sometimes pulling your hair out and pulling others' hairs out as well. You know, throwing things and smashing things on the floor. And the furniture is responsible for your anger. You know, that drawer you have at home, why does it not close properly now? It did the day you bought it. And it did three months later. But then one day, right, he or she at home said something that really annoyed you. And then what happened? You were supposed to close it gently. But you had to show that you were annoyed. To show that you were annoyed, because you can't hit them, you hit the furniture. This is how the mind is. When you want it, when it's building, it's like a pressure cooker, isn't it? Once the pressure has built up, it has to be released. Then you don't know who's going to get stick for that. If it's not the other person who you can't take it out on, it will be the furniture, it will be the poor cat, it will be the poor dog at home. Sometimes it's it's your children. Because they they can't fight back, they're only so innocent, so therefore you take it out on your children. The door gets a lot of it, doesn't it? The door gets a lot. Not the dog, the door. The door goes bang. Hmm? Then the neighbours know, Ah, okay, they're having one today. (laughs) I mean, I'm telling you, it's okay that these things have happened in the past, but if if you're actually doing what I'm asking you to do, otherwise you're just coming here for the roti. Forgive me, if you're really doing what I'm asking you to do then you should not be able to remember the last time you got angry and that's not because you're getting dementia. It's because you really can't remember the last time you got angry. I ask you when are you going to have that day, when I ask you when was the last time you got angry and you look at me and go, come to think of myself and I really can't remember. It seems like it was maybe a few years ago. So most definitely, at least a year ago. But I can't—I honestly can't remember. If you still say me this morning, Swamiji, this morning, only yesterday, just last week, then I have to ask you: What are you doing with the Dhamma? Are you just toying around with it? Am I just teasing you? Are we just playing when we come here? Or are you serious about nibbana? Are you seriously using the medicine of Dhamma to heal your wounds of Raga Desha and Moha? These are the rewards of the Dhamma. I want you to experience this, folks. Come on. I really want you to, because I know how, how delicious this is. This peace of mind that I have today, I've not had in an... I, I, ever. Ever. And every day, we, I keep moving forward. Hand on hand. I speak the truth and nothing but the truth. Every day I keep moving forward. Things that used to pester me, bother me, annoy me, frustrate me. Today, you know, the problems are still there. I can still solve the problems. It's like a math problem. You just solve it. But I'm able to see problems just as math problems. You know, if this is open, you have to close it. That's just a problem that needs to be solved. Otherwise it's going to dry out. But if that annoys me, If that makes me angry, now I have two problems. Because getting angry doesn't stop this from drying out, does it? So why get angry then? What value has it added? You ask your kid always, put the clip back on once you finish writing, otherwise the pen dries out. You ask him to do it once, they don't. You say, you have to put the clip back on once it, otherwise it's going to dry out. Now you ask him twice, still they don't. They use the pen and they just leave it there. Third time, fourth time, now, you know, it comes a point where you, you know, one day you come home, it's been a bad day at work, and then you give them. All hell breaks loose. All over a pen. Hearts are broken. Hmm? Sometimes never able to be healed again without the scars. The scars remain for the rest of their lives. Furniture broken cutlery thrown away, dishes broken, Hmm? the dog kicked, the cat dead because you took it out on them, and the child scarred for life. You've earned lots of demerit. We shall come back to you one day. And the pen is still dry. (laughs) What's the blooming point? What did anger actually give you ever? What gifts has anger ever given you? When did it ever reward you? Wasn't anger your own punishment for not practicing the Dhamma? Honestly? Hmm? Isn't anger your punishment for not practicing the Dhamma? So you can't tell me there are no consequences of not practicing the Dhamma. There are. You get angry. Who suffers the most? You do. Whether you believe in going to hell or not for doing unwholesome, unmeritorious deeds when you're dead, whether you believe in that or not, you can create hell for you in this life itself. If hell is synonymous with fire, when you're angry, how how does it feel inside? A flame, isn't it? You're burning inside. You know, when it's hot outside, you can take yourself into an air-conditioned room and it's cool, nice and cool. You can take a cool shower and then you're okay. You can get into a bath and you're fine. But when you're heated up inside, what do you do? When you're angry, how many cold showers are going to help you with that? What setting do we need to put the air con on when you're heated up inside to cool you down? Nothing. You know, make getting angry a thing of the past. I want you all to have that day where you can say, Swam I I honestly can't remember the last time I got angry. For that, you have to practice the Dhamma. There is no other way. Taking a walk, thinking about something else for 10 seconds, none of these things work. How do we know? (laughs) You've tried it. You know it doesn't work. Trying to get your mind off it and start thinking about something else. go watch the TV for, for a few few hours. No, just let, it, let, it, let it, take, get it out of your system. You know that doesn 't work because the problem still remains. These are not practical solutions to practical problems in life. No one has practical problems to practical, solu- practical solutions to practical problems in lives other than the Buddha. That is why we say natthi me sarana me sarana ngara. We've tried every trick in the book. They don't work. Watching TV when you're angry just because you want to take your mind off things doesn't work. Listening to music when you're sad, when, the, when your girlfriend's given you the boot, it doesn't work. Haven't you tried that enough times to know that it doesn't work? Comfort eating doesn't work. It doesn't work. Then you just have to, you know, pain away at the gym, that's all you have to do at the end. And then the doctor says you've got high cholesterol and blood pressure and diabetes and this is, these are... Whenever you take the wrong solution to life's problems, you are creating more problems for yourself than the ones you solve. You're always creating problems. For a mental vexation, don't look for answers anywhere other than the Dhamma. This is the best advice I can give you all. For any mental vexation, don't look for answers anywhere other than the Dhamma, you will be sorry you did. No questions asked. You will be sorry you did. You will be. You will come back and say, I wish in that moment in that moment, I was reminded of the dhamma. I wish in that moment I, had, I used the dhamma. And like I say, you know, now you have no excuse because you are armed with the dhamma. All you need to do is now practice it. Make getting angry a thing of the past. Perhaps sensuality doesn't bother you so much. Maybe it does for some, maybe it doesn't for others. But the same, same principle applies. You know, when there are things or people or experiences that you want to have and, you know, it's burning you from the inside, don't look for answers other than the Dhamma. You will be sorry you did. You will be. Today people, you know, they are, they have, they've got, they've picked up diseases that they have to live with for the rest of their lives. And we are so advanced now that these days you can't even talk about these things because people get offended. But the honest truth is, I'm not saying all of them, because some of these you pick up you know, from, from birth, but other times, you know, these are diseases caused by not being discerning about what you, what you do. And when you feel you want to do something, you just go and do it. It's a mental vexation, but the, the, physically you have to suffer. I mean, in vain, isn't it? When the Dhamma prevails, when the Dhamma is available to us, They suffer. People take drugs. People take alcohol. They drink, they try to drink away their problems. I'm sure in the audience there are those who tried that, used to try that at least. Maybe you don't do that now, but at least used to try that. Every other day you were half drunk. Because you had so many problems to get through, but you had no, you had no dharma to work on, so therefore you, you just drank away your problems. But you know, for. You know, you, you know this very well. When you were back sober, the problem is still there. Absolutely. More health problems, money problems, financially, you are better, you are worse off. Health-wise, you are first off. Your children have now taken bad examples. They think that is what they have to do. When there are problems, you just have to drink them away. And, you know, when you are intoxicated, when you are inebriated, you don't know what's going on. You've struck your wife. You don't know about this. Half the furniture in the house is broken. Don't know about this. The, 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 The doors are broken. The glasses are broken. They're shattered. Don't know about this. And then you wake up and you realize, good Lord, who did all this? (laughs) Were we burgled last night? (laughs) Yes, your sense was burgled. This has either happened to you or you've been there when this happened. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you may have grown up in families where your parents were like that. Maybe your father was like that. Have sympathy. What else can you do? In doing so, they earn tremendous amount of demerit and they left scars on you now, today you're trying to come out of. A lot of young children, they resort to taking alcohol because that's what they they learned when they were growing up. That's what they saw their parents doing when they were younger. And then they get into relationships, you know, get married and then when they're angry, what they know to do is hit their spouses. Because that's what they've seen their parents do. The thing is this, any man who's sane, who's in the right state of mind, doesn't do it. They don't. They don't do it. I mean, because it's not civil to do that. But, once you're drunk, you don't know what's going on. You can't think straight. You can't even walk straight, let alone think straight. Then, All of this is—I'm not someone who talks against taking alcohol or drugs or whatever. My 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 job here is this and nothing else. When you have a mental vexation, only take the Dhamma. The Dhamma should be your drug. The Dhamma should be the medicine that you take. Anything else, and you are spelling disaster for yourself. That's a disastrous concoction that you're cooking up. It will destroy you. I can say the same about watching TV. It's not just alcohol, it's not just drugs. I can say the same about watching TV. People binge watch, sometimes when they have mental problems, mental vexations, don't they? they you know, maybe they are, they're suffering from grievance, they've lost someone in the family. What sometimes people tend to do is they just go in and sit down, put on their Netflix and they'll watch series after series after series, binge watching. Trying to forget their problems. It doesn't work, it doesn't work. How can you forget something like that? It doesn't work. When the memory comes back to you again, because you know, this is just jis chitta. This chitta you can focus on something else, but the next chitta is going to come along. And then that is reminded of the event that occurred. And now you're back in the same state. You're just trying to... you can't wash away your problems. Just as much as you can't wash away your problems. You can't do that. The dhamma has to be your drug. Whenever you are in these situations, folks, please resort to the Dhamma. I speak to you with conviction because I did it and it worked. And it continues to work. Don't look for answers anywhere else. If you do, you will fail. And you will only have yourself to say sorry to. Only resort to the Dhamma when you have mental problems. Mental vexations, mental pains and mental frustrations, annoyances, never resort to anything other than the Dhamma. It will never work. If you have exam stress, like there may be young people in the audience, you have exams coming up. Right? And then you get stressed out about these exams and whatnot. I can't make you stop doing the exam. If you have to do the exam, do the exam. Because you have to do it to get yourself somewhere, get yourself work, get yourself into a good place. right? You've got to do these things. But When the mental vexation strikes, take the drug of Dhamma, try it. Binge eating is not the answer. Speaking to your friends is not the answer. Speak to your friends if you want to discuss a problem, maybe discuss the answer to a question. How do you write this question, get some advice, that's fine, because Dhamma will not give you that. But if you're mentally suffering, mentally vexing, then the Dhamma is your only answer. Because you know how vexation works, right? By this point, you've understood how vexation works. Vexation is rooted in ignorance. Sir? Can you that? How do we apply Absolutely. Take the object of your vexation. <clears throat> Consider yourself in a moment where you're vexed. Let's say you're stressed about an exam, an upcoming exam. You've got exams coming up. You're now stressed out about it. Anxiety kicks in. Like you have this fear now. That's what, that's what you, you mean by exam, fear, exam stress. Fear. Fear that you will not perform well. Fear that you will get questions to which you will not have answers and, you know, it, this is the desire to pass the exam. Well, because, you know, you know that if I don't pass the exam then I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do. That is something you want to have. What this exam is, is the obstacle between you and the object of your desire. This is the hurdle you've got to jump. If someone walked up to you and said, you know, there are no consequences of of passing this exam, whether you pass it or fail it, you're going to get your job. Then, are you going to worry about your exam? Maybe just doing it for fun. Whether you pass it or not, it doesn't matter. Then you're not going to worry about it. But you start stressing about it because you know that there are consequences. And what do I mean by these consequences? There are things that you want. And the obstacle, the hurdle between you and you getting what you want is the exam. So therefore you feel that this exam has complete control and power over you getting what you want. And that is true. It has control over you getting what you want. Because unless you pass the exam, let's not fool ourselves here, unless you pass the exam, you're not getting that promotion, you're not getting that job, you can't go to the next class, you can't get to a better school, whatnot. So that is not where you need to be looking for answers here. Here's where the deal is. The thing that you want, it is of such great and high value to you. So let's say, for instance, you want a promotion. To get that promotion, you have to pass this exam, and you only get one shot at it. They don't, they don't allow you to take it and have another go at it. And you have to pay a lot. There are high exam fees. You've paid all that. You have to be prepared, and the exam is there. If you only, pass, do you, only if you pass it do you get your promotion, otherwise you don't get it, and you can't have another go at it either. Now, that promotion is a big deal for you. In other words, you've hung your happiness, your hat of happiness on that hook that is that promotion. For you, that has become the source of happiness. You want that. Therefore, you're vexing over it. When you're vexing over it, now there's always the fear of what if it doesn't happen for me. So now let's go to the vexation cycle. You know the vexation process. You know also that if you pass this exam, when you get your results and they say you've passed, you know that of course it's going to give you tremendous amounts of pleasure. Yeah? So the fact that it gives you pleasure means you were vexing beforehand. There is no other way pleasure can happen. Not at all. The only way pleasure is possible is if you vex beforehand. So you know how this works then. You have this idea that passing this, this uh, the promotion that you want to get, the promotion that you want to get, you have this idea that this is pleasant. You want it. You want to have it. This is now the object of your desire. It has become the defining characteristic of your happiness. You want it. To be happy, I have to have the promotion. And how did that happen? You know, you weren't born with that, were you? Six years ago, you didn't have this idea about that promotion. But people started building up, hyping you up about it. They told you about how good this promotion is. They told you about all the things that you would be able to do once you get the promotion. Maybe they said, once you get this promotion, you can go to Singapore. Once you get this promotion, you can travel to the USA. And you can settle down there, they give you a green card and you can settle down, start a family, take your family over there and start a new life. Now you're looking forward to this promotion because this promotion brings you all the things that you've always been waiting for. That has become the purpose of your existence now, not Nimbana anymore. See, happiness was always with you. Contentment was the answer to happiness but you started seeking happiness from something else you see what does a promotion bring you ultimately it brings you sights sights of course it does bring you sights you get to see things you don't get to see today without the promotion you get to see things you get to hear things they they start calling you sir or they can't start calling you senior they start calling you major They start calling you general. These are the things you start to hear. Sounds. Smell, taste, touch perhaps. Because it promises you greener pastures on the other side of the world. It promises you status. Maybe status is a big thing for you. Once again, think about what status is. This is all defined with the eye. Maybe with your promotion, you're going to get, you're going to be regarded very highly in your place of work, and you, you yearn that, that status. You always wanted to feel that you are an important person, and you like for others to acknowledge you in that way. Who wants all this? I. Where is that I that wants all this? <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, this I who's going to get the promotion is not the same I who's going to do the exam. Oh, what a pity. You are going to stress over it, someone else is going to get the promotion. You work for your, you know, you work 9 to 5, you work 30 days, 30 days a month, right? Someone else gets the, gets the pay. So, when these things happen to you, bring yourself to reality. You have a sense of self, This is only a perception of self. This perception of self, you build up in your mind, and now you have a future, you have a past, and you have a present. You sense you have that, because the moment you experience a self, you put yourself on the dimension of time. Because what is self again? The feeling of existence, isn't it? You can't talk about existence without talking about time if you if you exist you have existed and you will exist and for a d- there's going to be a duration. So therefore, things that have happened due to cause and effect, all due to cause and effect, things have always only happened due to cause and effect and they will only happen because of cause due to cause and effect. these things which happen due to cause and effect, including the rising and passing away of a chitta, including The sense of self which appears in a chitta, these are all effects of causes. But you're ignorant of this in this moment. Because you're ignorant of this, the sense of self still appears in the chitta. A sense of past, a sense of future and a sense of present creates in the mind. This is created in the mind. And then now, passing the exam is of course an event that is going to happen in the future. or Right now you just have to do the exam, right? The passing, the results and the promise of whatever it's going to bring you, the prospects, the better prospects, these are all things to happen in the future. Why does this chitta feel that it's going to get all that? Why does this chitta think to itself that I am going to get the promotion? Because it projects a future. It doesn't realize that this is just a chitta manifesting in this moment. All I have to do is pick up my pen, not even write the answers. The next chitta has to read the question. The next chitta has to start putting, put the, put, the, put the pen down to the paper. The next chitta has to write one letter. And you know it's not one letter. There are maybe a billion chittas that go into constructing one letter. It is because of your inability to live in a chitta, you have these problems. I don't mean there's going to be a day where you experience chitta by chitta. I'm not saying that that's going to happen. That is not what's going to happen. You will still see people as you do today. You're not going to see dots. It's not like a dot matrix. You're not going to see that. You're going to see people as people. You're going to see objects as objects. When you look up at the sky, you're not going to see like little fragments and pigments. You're just going to see a big blue sky. And you're going to see the clouds. You're going to see the earth, you're going to see everything as you do today. But here's what's not going to happen for you. You will not have a sense of self because you will have understood that there is no such thing called a self because a self is a sense of separation. When you have understood that separation does not bring you joy, it does not bring you happiness and separation is nothing other than suffering itself. The sense of separation is nothing other than jāti. This is the creation of the dependent origination process that starts at avidya and ends at jāti. Bhavpachya jāti. Once you come to this understanding, the sense of self has no, has no reason to prevail because it's based in ignorance. It's based in ignorance. Ignorance is ignorance of the jāti. So then what happens? Once you begin to realize That this sense of separation never brought you any happiness, it is suffering itself. You no longer yearn it, you no longer wish for it, you no longer want it, and you no longer vex for it. You know, remember ladies and gentlemen, this is not in your control. In other words, by your control I mean it is not in the control of the self. Because the self is only a sense of self, isn't it? The self can never be in control of anything. So there's no such thing called self-control. Although they talk about it highly. Self-control, have a sense of self-control, they say. There is no such thing called self-control because there is no self to control. Self-discipline, there is no such thing called self-discipline. Conventionally, yes, we talk about it. Even when you talk about you know management, leadership and so on, we talk about self-discipline, self-control and all that. But in absolute terms, there is nothing that the self can do other than bring you the 11 great fires. That's all the self can do. It can bring you fear. It can bring you grievance. It can bring you sorrow. It can bring you lamentation. It can bring you frustration and it can bring you disappointment. It cannot bring you any sense of control. Because actually if it could, then the self wouldn't be there in the first place if it had control. There is no control. Whenever ignorance happens in the mind, the mind goes into a state of vexation. The vexation for separation. Why? Because I want to be separate. I want to be separate. I want to be I. That's what it is. The mind wishes to be an I. The mind wishes to be separate. In the example of the exam, the promotion and and the exam and whatnot, you see that future event as a single, as a product, as a unit. That single event. And you experience yourself as an entity. Now, things have to happen to this entity, mustn't they? When things happen, they happen to you. For instance, if I were to throw this pen at you, you'll tell me, so Amin Nahasya threw the pen at me. So because I'm here, things happen to me. Things either happen to me or things don't happen to me. Yeah. So, because you define the whole world around you, the entire world around you is defined by their relationship to you as a self. Now, even such a thing as passing an exam, or that promotion, or the failure, of not, So, not passing an exam, all of these things you feel are things that happen to you. So, it's all based in the self. So, first of all, you create this self in the mind. It's not a self, it's not a real self, it's a, a perception, a sense of self. This is based in Nichya, Sukha and Atta. Because all that comes to the mind are Rupa shabda, Gandha, rasa, sparsha in other words, right, sound, smells, taste and touch. When these things come to you, the mind goes into a state of vexation to experience a unique entity because that's what the mind wants. And you know, sometimes this might sound like Greek to some of you. It's like he's going on about self and self and why don't really make any sense of all this really. It might sound a little bit bizarre, it might sound a little bit absurd and maybe even a little bit abstract. But you know, the best way to focus on what I'm the best way to understand perhaps what I'm trying to explain to you, ladies and gentlemen, is Answer this question for me. You know you are just a body and a mind. Why do you feel that you are an individual? How do you explain that? Why do you feel that you are a person? Why do you feel that this is your body? Why do you feel that you are an entity? How do you explain that? Where's the, what's the basis for that? What's the foundation for that? If not for ignorance, and you are just a chitta that arises and passes away, how can a chitta have a name? You think you have a name today. If someone gets your name wrong, you, you feel offended. You feel insulted. If someone says something to you, maybe if they criticize some some bodily aspect of yours. Like you're wearing specs, and someone says, hey blind you feel offended. If you're fat and someone says "fat," so you feel offended. If you're short and someone calls you a "shorty," you feel offended. Why? Think about this. Why? This is the body that they're referring to. Why does the mind feel hurt? Now you have to. You need to find an answer to this. Why is this so? The reason for this is because the mind always wishes to separate, identify, make things unique, identify things as a unit, isolate things, and separate things. This is what the mind does when the mind is ignorant and it thinks that the world is nitya, sukha and atta. In other words, the world is not based in cause and effect. There are things and there are things that they are. That's it. Things in this world, they are separate. And things in this world are identified with self. When the mind believes in this principle, when it's ignorant in this manner, all things that it comes into contact with, it feels, has a connection, has a relationship to oneself. That is why you feel, when you look at yourself in the mirror, that this is my body. You know, today, perhaps you go in front of the mirror and you look at yourself and you start to contemplate, no, this can't be my body, this is just a body, this is just matter, right? Don't you have to train yourself to do this now? Because you've never done it this this way before, you never felt this way before, you never felt the need to do this before. But today, you look at yourself in the mirror and you think to yourself, no, although it feels like I'm looking at myself, this is not myself, this is just the rice I ate two weeks ago. So today you try to make that distinction, but all this while, you never felt that there was any any difference there. You felt that this is all part of the same thing. And you didn't, you know, it came to you naturally, didn't it? So now you have to ask the question, how did that happen naturally? That is the natural process of dependent origination. Avidya, pachya Sankara, all the way down to Baba Jati. This is the natural process that created this fantasy in your world in your mind, and gave you the impression that you are an entity. Once you had this image that you are an entity, now everything in this world is connected to you in some way, either in a positive way or in a negative way. You either like them or you dislike them. So that is what is going on here. When you you feel the fear of an exam coming up, you feel that exam is something to do with you. You can't help this feeling unless... You take refuge in the Dhamma. You'll always feel this way. Just like when you look at your children, you feel this is my daughter, this is my son. How? how? You know, there can, there can be a biological connection, but how can there be a mental connection? Just think about this. How can there be a mental bond? Biologically, yes. You know, when a, when a, when a fruit falls off a tree and the seed is planted... And it grows into another tree, you kill the, the 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 plant, you know it doesn't hurt the tree. It doesn't hurt the mother tree. Because there's only a biological connection. There is some DNA or RNA in the case of plants, but the the tree doesn't feel any mental connection because of course the tree doesn't have a mind, but even if it did. Unless there's going to be attachment and ignorance, there's no way that there's, they, they, can, they can feel a sense of fear or grievance or sorrow of any sort. This is why an arahant doesn't feel that way. That's why an arahant can be okay no matter what happens to the people around them, to the objects around them. Because they don't feel that these things are mine or these events, these objects have a connection, relation to me. That sense of me is gone. But the sights still remain the same, the sounds remain the same, the smells, taste and touch, they all remain the same. The only thing that is gone is a sense of self. So therefore, when you have that exam fear, exam anxiety, exam stress, in this example that we're using here, ask yourself, who's doing the exam? Who has this exam got a connection to? Who's going to pass the exam? Who's going to fail the exam? And if you have this answer, it's me, you can't help but fear will come to you. You can't help it. Fear will be part and parcel of that. So therefore, there's only one way to to overcome that. What's that? Go for a walk. Jump up and down. Go watch TV, so you can forget it for a while. Eat something, so you can forget it for a while. Go to the gym, run, (laughs) so you can forget it for a while. Nonsense, right? Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. How does eating help the mind? Is it the mind you feed? How does going for a walk help the mind? Is it the mind you take for a walk? These things don't help. You need the Dhamma. Here's what the Dhamma will do. The Dhamma will re-engineer the mind. It will change its thinking patterns. It will put sense into the mind. The mind only suffers because the mind is ignorant. The mind thinks that I am a self. It is me, and these things are all happening to me. But, put the right code in there. It's like a software program. Just put the right code in there. This code is buggy, the one that you have. It's got bugs in it. Therefore, it it crashes. It it heats up. It runs into fatal errors and so on. It keeps throwing exceptions. But debug that code. That's what the Buddha Dhamma helps you do. All you've got to do is just change one way of your thinking. You think Nichya Sukha Atta, change that to Anicha Us, it doesn't happen overnight because it needs some contemplation, it needs some practice. You need to put in the code and then practice it. Even Nichya Sukha Atta, you've practiced it so much. That's why it, is, it happens to you so naturally. It's like driving and you know, when you're stuck in traffic, you don't think about applying the brakes, do you? The moment you're, you know, sometimes when you drive your car home, you don't even think the number of times you've changed gear, the number of times you've played, you know, you know, used the pedals, you, you don't even think about it. If someone asks you how many times did you change changed gear, don't know. But while you were training, while you were learning to drive, you were probably very conscious about that. But then it becomes second nature to you, you don't even think about it. This has happened to you with Nichya, Sukha and Atta. Now you don't even think about it, it just happens. The moment I show you this, you think one duster. One duster. This duster is a unit. You can't stop yourself from thinking that way because you have practiced this. You have trained yourself to do this. So now all you got to do now is train something else. Train the new dhamma. Now we go with anicca dukkha anatta. Look at this and ask yourself: Is this a single unit or is this merely a manifestation? Causes matter in this arrangement at any given moment. Pachuppanna. But it has the nature of being together. It has the nature of being a a unit. It, 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 It represents itself as a unit. But that's it. It's just a structure, a structure of materials together. This is just matter, energy together, held together by other energies. That's all it is. It is not a single unit. Therefore, this is not something that something will happen to. I'll say again, this is not something that something will happen to. Because this is not one thing. It's just an arrangement of matter. That's it. So, someone comes and cuts it in half. It's not the duster that is now in two halves. Why do you say that two halves? Yeah. When you say something is now two halves, what you're implying is it was one before, right? That's why I say two halves. And why is it half? How do you know it's half? I show you something, how do you tell me, how do you say it's half of something? Where's the other half? Where is the other half? That's in your mind. That's how you know something is a third or a quarter or half of something. Why do you say it's half an hour? Where's the other half of the hour? That, that's in your mind. That's in your mind. See, you, When you look at the clock, the face of the clock, right? there's one arm here and the other arm here. Right, so 12 here and uh, 9 here. Then I ask you what time it is, you say 9 o'clock. If you had the minute minute hand, so this is the minute hand here, right? And uh, your, it's going to be 12, it's just before 12, you'll say it's quarter to 12. So in your mind you have 12, the hour is the complete thing Quarter to that. Why do you say quarter to twelve? Because you've taken that as one. The hour as one. And now in relation to that, you tell the rest of it. So there's always this framing going on in your mind. Just like you frame your bodies. You say, this is a frame. This frame is mine. This is my body. So this is the problem that we all have. And it will continue until... The Dhamma begins to settle in your mind. So finally, when you have this exam stress, this exam fear, if that happens to you, anger comes to you, lust comes to you, frustration comes to you, go back to what you have learned in Dhamma school. Where's Dhamma school? Here. Go back to what you have learned in Dhamma school. Ask yourself, who is this all happening to? Why do I feel that this is all happening to me? if you can at that point i mean this for this to to really con, be able to contemplate you have to have at least achieved the state of sotapanna otherwise it will just be an understanding it won't be a comprehension you won't be able to actually internalize this but even if you haven't that is what you should strive to become if you have then great so the question don't don't worry about whether i have become one or not because the dhamma is to be practiced by a sotapanna the Dhamma is to be listened to by someone who wishes to become a Sotapanna. But once you become a Sotapanna, listening to the Dhamma further helps you further in your practice. So if you have become one, don't worry about whether you have or not, but I'm telling you this can this becomes your practice after you become a Sotapanna. In other words, someone who has comprehended the truth. Then, once you, once you are in that situation, you are now able to immediately use the Dhamma that you have understood and apply it into the problem that you have. When you contemplate on this, ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, your sense of self begins to disappear in that moment. You, st- you don't perceive this existence, this event, these events, in relation to self. Your sense of self is either suppressed or it disappears at least momentarily. And then you begin to realize, oh, hold on a second, this is just Vipaka. It's not an exam that I am doing, it's not a result that I am expecting, it's not a promotion that is going to be happening to me or be taken away from me. All these things that until now you felt were connected to you, you lose that connection. It's like if you had a string tied to a pole, right, firmly placed in the ground. Now, if you say you had had an animal, say a cow was tied to this string, or a dog, it's tied to a leash and it's tied to a pole, right? When the, when the animal tries to walk away, it always pulls on this, it tugs on the, on the pole, right? So therefore, you are always connected to that. If you let go of this here, you don't have to go to the animal. If you just let go, if you untie it here by the pole, now the animal walks away. And now you are not bothered anymore by it. Until then, it will keep coming back to you. In the same way, when problems happen in your life, untie it at the pole. You don't need to go to the, to, the, you know, to the end of the problem. You don't need to go to the end of the string. You don't need to go and deal with the person on the other side or the event on the other side or the object on the other side. Come back to you where the pole is. Untie it there. Then the animal will walk away, with or without the leash. Who cares? Not your problem. So It can become, become someone else's problem if they want it to be. You just need to untie it at, your, at yourself, where you are. For that, just contemplate back on anicca Contemplate on the Dhamma. Bring yourself back to the doctrine. The doctrine will help you in that moment. But for that, you need to understand the doctrine and you need to get some, yourself some practice. So what are you doing as Srila Sravakas and Sravikas and Vaisis and as devotees? You come to the Dhamma school to learn this. You take time in the Valley Malava to practice it. You sit down with your teachers and you discuss it to ensure that you have actually mastered the science behind it. So, when you have a problem, you know exactly how to wield your sword, the sword of wisdom. Because first, you have to understand the principles, how do you, how do you wield it, how do you cut with it, how do you slice with it. These are the, the techniques you need to learn. Once you learn them, you just need to practice it. And this is what we do as monks. We practice until, you know, one day comes where you don't feel a sense of self at all. That's what you got to do. And your merits will help you with the same. So, whenever you do your merits, like today we have Dakinayo in a short while. Whenever you, have, whenever you are working on your merits, always make a resolve. May these merits help all sentient beings to free themselves from suffering. You don't have to focus it on yourself because it is not your jati and my jati, is it? Jati is jati. That's why one day when you become an arahant, you realize we haven't even begun. Because the arahant realises that Jati is a Jati that happens to minds, not to me. Until he becomes an Arhant, he feels that it is he who has to attain Nibbana. But once he has attained Nibbana, he realises that it is not I who have attained Nibbana. Nibbana has happened in one mind, but there is a vast ocean of minds in which Nibbana is yet to happen. So he feels that he has not even begun. That's why, until his death, he carries on his service of spreading the Dhamma and, and helping others to understand the truth. So whenever you earn your do your merits, ladies and gentlemen, just, just focus on this and make a resolve. May by the you know like, like we do at the end of a merit transfer, by the power of these merits, may I be able to, may we all become be able to become an arhatunvance. What is an arhatunvance? Someone who send, doesn't sense a sense of self. That's it. You become a chitta, which is what you are. <laughs> There's nothing to become. You are a chitta. You just need to accept that. Right now you don't accept that. You feel that you are something more than a chitta. That's the problem. It's like the rust around the iron. The iron is always there. It's the rust that's the problem. You are all our Rahatanmohanses. We just need to bring it out of you. That's all. Just imagine if you had to create the Rahatanmohansi inside of you. (laughs) That would have been very difficult. We don't need to. Rahatanmohansi is there. Just need to bring them out. That's our task. Right. Let's do the merit transfer today. And bring the sermon to a close. All right then, let us all take a moment to transfer all the maids we have all acquired. By making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, inviting the Swami Nuhasi to deliver the sermon, listening to the Dhamma and creating a conducive environment for all to come along and practice the Dhamma, let us first and foremost remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching, and with immense gratitude let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha, and passed it down to the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is, thankfully, available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us transform the mates we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that amongst them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to Guru Swami in Mohanse, as well as all the monks resident at the monastery, and the Anagarika and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer the merits we have acquired, and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by translating these talks, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them. May, by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May, through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer these merits we have acquired to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who, for the sake of merits, to help them attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Sangha with shelter, arms, robes, and medicines, as well as those who pass on their know how and continue to extend their well wishes, may by the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and sisters, brothers and. beg your pardon. Brothers and sisters, husbands and wives. Sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our friends, our acquaintances, our employers, our employees, our teachers, as well as everyone and anyone who have gone the extra mile on our behalf, helped us, supported us, and assisted us in any way, shape or form, may they all rejoice in these merits, and by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcoming obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfil the meritorious deeds, fulfil the noble eightfold path. And may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Deva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities, who have committed themselves to protecting and preserving the sasana. Let us transfer these merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. May they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nikban. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to those who have predeceased us, our forefathers and our ancestors, reminding us that it is in their blood, sweat and tears today we are able to practice the path and achieve our freedom and our liberation. Therefore, with gratitude and gratefulness, let us transfer these merits to all of them. Let us also transfer these merits to those who make great sacrifices on our behalf to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. This includes everyone in the armed forces as well as the police force. Let us also transfer these merits to those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, as well as to those who have lost their lives in natural disasters and calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, fires, floods and pandemics, reminding ourselves that they have all been mothers and fathers to us, brothers and sisters to us, friends to us in this infinitely long journey of samsara. They will have gone out of their way to help us, support and assist us in, any way, in many ways and shapes and forms, therefore with gratitude and gratefulness towards all of them and out of infinite compassion towards all of them, let us transfer all the merits we have acquired from our, from doing all the meritorious deeds we have to all of them. May, by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, May, by the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may you and I and everyone who has helped make this program a success become a Rahatan Mahanse or an Arahateranin Mahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gen be with you all. And the members of the Mahasangha will transfer their blessings to you.
1: Rāga-ginnan-midat-vā dvesa ginnan moha nibbana parama Sukhayan Sukhita dhara vetnva Nibbana parema sukhayen Sukhita dhara vetnva Mamada Siyalu loka Siyalu Satvayo satnva yo Nibbana parema sukhayen Sukhita Tara Vetnva Nibbana Parama Sukhaya Sukhita Tara Vetnva Nibbana Parama Sukhaya Sukhita Tara Vetnva Rāga gini niveva, dvesha gini niveva, moha gini niveva, nivan sapalaveva, nivan sapalaveva. Niva Nsaparaveva. Tundra Nge Suvisyananta Mahaguna Belen. Silu Loka Silu Satayama. Nibbana Paramasuken Sukta Taravetva. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.